0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event, the latest in our Living Change season, where we're sharing our platform with the practitioners, policy shapers, problem solvers, who are finding new ways to make change happen. And I'm particularly pleased to have the chance today to talk to our guest, an old friend, former colleague of mine, Michael Barber. So Michael Barber is a global expert on implementation of large-scale system change, a leading authority on education systems and education reform, and was knighted in 2005 for his contributions to improving government. He's advised governments on every continent and worked with major private sector organisations and universities in Britain and the US. He's a member of the Football Association's Technical Advisory Board and advises Team Sky, the elite cycling team. Uh, He joins us today to mark the publication of his latest book, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, which sets out a pattern to be followed to achieve success, whatever it is that you might be hoping to accomplish. So as we start thinking about what we want to change in the wake of the pandemic, we really couldn't have a more expert guide to talk to. So thank you for joining us, Michael. Welcome back to the RSA stage.
0: Thank you, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, great to talk with you. And uh, we could add to my CV, fellow of the RSA.
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you for being a fellow.
0: Um, I, I've got various things I want to
1: talk to you about, but I'm going to leap straight in with something that I was talking to people about yesterday. And, and I, I want to get this first because I don't want to forget it. I was talking to some people in the health service about challenges in the health service to do with delivery and to do with outcomes and to do with getting uh, out to communities that don't reach out themselves don't reach out need- when they need medical help or health advice the difficult to reach groups and the point they were all making was we've done this in the vaccination program we've found that we can you know we can reach these groups when we really need to reach them we can deliver at pace when we really need to so, Michael, for you as a, as a deliverer, the story of the vaccine uh, must be fascinating for you. And the, the question of what we can take from that uh, and how we can build on that is is also one that we, we we need to be having a conversation about, don't you think?
0: I totally agree. I, th- I think the vaccine uh, rollout has been a tremendous accomplishment for the National Health Service, for all the people involved in it, and actually for the country. Um, as I came out of my uh, vaccination uh, three weeks ago, I said to somebody on the way, it makes you proud to be British. It felt more, the, the, the thing it most closely related to in my own personal experience was the London Olympics. It was just everybody pulling together, getting behind it. So I, I congratulate all the people involved at every level in, in the rollout of that. I do think there are lessons to learn. One of the things, uh, as you know, Matthew, that I've talked about with the Treasury in uh, looking at the value you get for public expenditure, obviously, you want to achieve some goals some particular, call them targets, call them goals, but you want to cut some outcomes for the money. But also, I think you get better public value if you get real public engagement. You get engagement so the user's motivated, you get the, 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 the public servants providing the service, that sense of engagement, you actually get much better public value for the same amount of money. Uh, and I think the, the vaccine rollout is a perfect example of how people have really engaged with that mission got behind it and made it work. So I think there will be many lessons to learn. And by the way, in other fields as well will be lessons to learn. The way, the way universities have developed digital teaching and learning over the last year, after a really a kind of shock start when they were thrown into digital teaching and learning, now they're beginning to learn things that will be lessons for the future, not just for, for the pandemic phase.
1: One thing I was particularly struck by, which is, and, and, and you, you, know, one of the things, you know, you're an incredibly positive, optimistic problem-solving guy, but you must have frustrations like the rest of us do. And one of the frustrations is the fact that lessons seem to have to be learned over and over again. And and one of the things about the the vaccination programme is that what it's reminded us is that, you know, if you want to reach into those communities that don't naturally come forward to ask for help and who feel potentially suspicious of authority, you've got to go out to the communities. So I was talking to the manager of an integrated care system yesterday and he was saying that initially there were different vaccination take up rates in his area. And it looked like there was a kind of social class dimension to this. And and people were saying, well, you know, the reason that you're getting a lower take up rate here is because, you know, these are working class communities or more BME communities. When he looked at it, it wasn't that at all. It was simply that they just had not put the vaccination centres in those communities and when they actually put the vaccination centers in those communities so in, in sites that people recognized and felt happy going to well, then the difference disappeared and I thought well there's two really interesting things about that, Michael. One is the slight tendency we have whenever we don't succeed in relation to poorer people to kind of implicitly blame them, say well of course it 's about them they 're not really very aspirational or you know whatever uh, and 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 secondly, this kind of uh, Idea that 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 you know, if you don't reach out into those communities, you're not you know you're not going to make a difference, and it doesn't matter how high a hill you stand on shouting about what's good for people. You've actually got to go out and meet them.
0: I totally agree, and we we and um, I've been working um, through colleagues of mine with uh, a dozen or so American cities on responding to the COVID-19 crisis, but also the vaccination campaign. And exactly that point comes up again and again. And in fact, it applies across the public services. If I think of the universities that do really well on encouraging access and participation, they're going to find the students. They don't wait for people to come to them. Um, My favorite example is the, uh, the guy who ran the Cal State system, California State system, who spent lots of Sunday mornings going to African-American churches because that was the time when you could meet families in an engaged way in a, in a space where they would be open to a really vigorous conversation. And that way they recruited uh, uh, many uh, African-American students who would not otherwise have gone to Cal State. And similarly, uh, the Vietnamese community in California, there were various social centers. He, and he, he worked all that where to be at the right time and then to actually go and do it. And I think outreach if that's a too glib a word, but getting out into the communities and finding people and encouraging them and the, the things like the location of vaccination centres, all of that is important. And it, exactly as you imply, it, it takes you away from being rather patronising and treating these people as victims, treating the people as vi- victims or, 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 or um, somehow uh, labelled as excluded and just going to find them and making it easy and straightforward or as easy as possible. For them to take the action they need so they take control of their own future, but you've made it possible for them.
1: And my point about how we have to keep learning this lesson is, is that when I hear about this, it just reminds me of SureStart. And the fact that what we learned from the first evaluation of SureStart was that it wasn't really reaching the groups we wanted to reach because it had a kind of open door approach. The assumption was, well, we'll set up this facility and people will come to us. It started to work once people realized that for some of the families you most wanted to reach, you had to go and knock on the door, you know, you you you, or you had to find a friend of theirs who would encourage them to come. And, you know, so that's a lesson we, we, we seem to keep. And I think it's mainly because middle class people who design these services are all at ease with authority. We you know we're happy walking into official buildings. We open envelopes that arrive on our doorstep with our name on them. If you don't feel that way about things, then you need a different approach to
0: people. Yes, and there's, there's lots of good work being done by the Behavioural Insights team on, on how do you make minor changes in the way you do things to encourage exactly that kind of response. Um, one of their things was with uh, FE colleges, when students didn't show up, the college had started um, sending texts to people saying, you missed class yesterday. And it made a marginal difference, but when they got the friends of the person who missed the, the session to text it, him or her, that made a big difference. So it's, it's small things like that can make a huge difference, but, but it's, it's, I think you're implying an attitude of mind that I think is really fundamentally important here. In the book, um, I, I've got a section about Louisa Diogo, who was the prime minister of Mozambique between 2004 and 2010. And she, she the, the way she talks about this issue, she says, well, sometimes it's best not to think of government as delivering. You think of government as creating the context unlocking the music in people. And I love that concept of unlocking the music in people. She attributes the year in which Mozambique had 15% growth in GDP to having unlocked the music in people across Mozambique.
1: So let's go back to the book, which I which I really enjoyed. And, and tell me, Michael, what, what what inspired the book? Because, you know, I've read all your stuff over the years or all your stuff that you've published publicly. And, and a lot of the notes that you sent to the Prime Minister when I was walking in Downing Street with you. But um, you're very focused. But this is a book which, you know, it's about something, accomplishment, but in some ways it's quite an eccentric book. You know, this a book where you're going to find yourself reading a comparison between Dave Brailsford and Galileo, for example. So I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in, in, in what inspired you to write a book which is so kind of wide-ranging.
0: Yeah, it's... Well, I, I think... That, that's a good characterization of it, of, it, of it, Matthew. And uh, I, I, as you know, because uh, you were there, in government, I was uh, renowned for being very focused on a small number of priorities that the Prime Minister that we worked for, Tony Blair, had, had set. And I knew that in order to get those done, I had to be focused and couldn't be distracted from that. Um, and so, you know, when big foreign policy uh, events like the Iraq war happened, you couldn't distract me. Uh, So so I was just focused on that. And then afterwards, I wrote about that a couple of books. And they are about how if you're going to get big things done in government or in other big organizations that matter, you do need focus and discipline and rigor and all of those things. Um, But then I also began doing um, bits and pieces of work, like with the FA Technical Advisory Board and Gareth Southgate preparing for the World Cup in Russia, where I began to see the pattern that I'd seen in government replicated in other fields, in sport, in art, I read a fantastic book about Picasso painting Guernica, for example, which I picked up in in my book. And you you see this pattern of delivery, uh, or getting things done, or as the title of the book is, pattern of accomplishment, that replicates itself in all kinds of fields. Um, And I just thought it'd be really exciting to try to distill that pattern of accomplishment and show that it can work in a wide range of fields. And for my critics uh, of my government work who uh, say it's all top-down and too rigorous and too data-driven, what I wanted to show is some of the great creative acts of our time actually do need that kind of rigor. So so it's not an either or, the two go together. Guernica is one of the great paintings ever, certainly one of the great paintings in the 20th century. But if you look at what what, uh, Picasso was doing in the three or four weeks he put it together, uh, it was absolutely disciplined, with people checking on delivery, all the rest of it. So I, I wanted to get into that wider argument that creativity and discipline and rigor actually often go together; they're not separate.
1: So I couldn't out feeling at the end of the book that that you're you're riding two horses throughout the book, and I know that you're going to say, "Well, you should, you have to have both horses." But I I wondered whether in the end. One of those horses is before the other in your imagination. So one horse is individuals, heroic individuals. This book is full of heroic individuals, Justin Trudeau or Dave Brailsford or Galileo or Picasso or the, 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 the Prime Minister of Mozambique or whatever it might be, but it's also about technique. You know, it's a book with a hundred or more, you know, tips about how it is you can uh, p- pursue accomplishment. Now, actually, in some ways, these are kind of different views of the world. You know, the, the one is great leaders are idiosyncratic, they'll do what they need to do because it's in them. And the other one is, well, no, actually, it doesn't really matter about the qualities of the leader if you have the right toolkit and you use the right toolkit. What's the kind of balance of these things, Michael? Or are you essentially saying, if you really want to crack a hard problem, you're going to have to have both?
0: Well, I think, first of all, I wouldn't argue, uh, I hadn't intended to argue, and I don't think I do argue in the book that, that an individual leader, idiosyncratic or not, on his or her own can get this job done. It's how they build coalitions. It's how they build a team around them. It's how they, wide. I've got a whole section on ever-widening circles of leadership. I take that um, the brilliant Alan Stern who sent the New Horizons spacecraft to Pluto. Uh, he had to build coalitions from a small number of um, radical space scientists who thought it was time to explore Pluto. He had to go from that small group eventually to getting people in Congress people in the office of management and budget, the president, et cetera, but also scientists out there, media, people in schools, and think, wow, that would be an exciting thing to do. So that, that sense of building coalitions, building people around you, building a, um, uh, a group that gets ever wider dedicated to your mission, I do think is really fundamentally important. The point about the techniques that you make is right, because some of those things are learnable things. And if we sit and watch people achieve things, and think it's all because they're a brilliant leader, we find, we say, well, that'd be too difficult, I couldn't do that, but he or she is like that. But if you know that behind the great leaders, the people who achieve great things, are a set of techniques that if you apply them, you can do that, that's important. And so I am riding two horses in the sense of any individual that wants to set an ambitious goal can get on and do it, and these techniques will help. or large organizations can apply these techniques at organizational level and achieve great things. But it's a learnable set of skills. By the way, that doesn't make it easy. You've still got to work really hard. It's still got to persist through difficulty. You've got to solve problems. You run into it. So it doesn't make it easy, but it makes it possible. And you can see the path to accomplishment. And if I had one outcome from the book that more people thought, I can get that done, uh, I can get that which will be fulfilling, will be good for the world, will be good for me, if that was the outcome of the book, I'd be thrilled to bits.
1: There's a, a reasonably strong kind of autobiographical element to the book, Michael, in the sense that you talk about your own attempts to run a half marathon fast or you cycle across the west coast of Britain, and, and partly that in the wake of, of having to, 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 to deal with a cancer diagnosis. And, you know, it, that, that's very interesting. And also, you know, your, your, your examples go from when you were working for the teachers' union in the early 90s right up to the present day. Now, I've kind of teased you in the past by, by kind of sometimes saying, well, um, perhaps I haven't done this in your presence and it might offend you. But sometimes I say, well, there's pre-barber-barber, there's barber-barber, and there's post-barber-barber. You know, that your thinking has evolved over the years. Share with us, in a sense, what, what have been the big things that have developed in your thinking about accomplishment over your incredibly, uh, you know, successful career?
0: Well, well just on, on the, just before I go into that, very important and good question or interesting question um, I think um, you the reason I tell some stories about myself in the in the book apart from that um, I hope, hopefully they make it engaging but is is that I want to show that the pattern of accomplishment you can apply to your own personal goals as well as to transform your health service or um, a, a great scientific experiment or whatever it might be but the I think that, that it's true that i've it's been a big uh, it would be really shocking if uh, over 40 years of a career you didn't learn something along the way. The first thing is the dedication of the book is to my parents and my Quaker heritage, and that has been fundamentally important to me right through, so the, the sense that you have to treat everybody as equal in the eyes of God. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a believer in God, but a, but, a, but the, that sense of treating everybody as equal is important. That's why I start the book with the story of Mary Fisher, the, the Quaker woman in the 1650s who goes off to meet the the Ottoman Sultan and, and amazingly gets to see him. Um, so, so that's one thing. And and that has also helped me negotiate things when I was a teacher union official, that, that attitude of how you deal with people in, in different positions. So that's, that was, that's probably fundamental learning from my, from my youth that stayed with me in the, in the teacher union, um, I learned about assembling people around a mission. And that I think I talk about principled bargaining that I read about in the, the, the famous books, Getting to Yes and Getting Past No, which I read about then, and then applied in my own experience and found you could come out in 1992-3 of a test boycott uh, with an agreement on the way forward on national curriculum and, and, and assessment. So that was big learning. And then what I learned in government at the time that you and I were together and the and the four years before that when I was doing the education reform is that you have to be unbelievably rigorous and disciplined to get everything done because there are so many distractions, so many there are so many things pulling you away from actually getting the job done. That I found that uh, was a tremendous learning experience, and it made me almost a little bit unpopular with myself. I had to become a kind of obsessive. We're just going to get this done, um, and it was a big learning experience. But it was also it, it was also character-forming in in um, challenging ways sometimes and then um since then the whole thing about um how you how you get people motivated to do things when either that for 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 different reasons that they think it's too difficult I, I was very struck i went to uh, my hometown of liverpool in the year when it was the european capital of culture and um i was talking to somebody about how the the city had really turned around in the decade prior to that, um, and the, the, the cab driver, um, you know, to answer the question, how did, we, how did Liverpool do that? He said, we stopped feeling sorry for ourselves. And the, the sense that, you, that people have to take, it goes back to your opening question of this conversation, actually, that people have to take, suddenly take ownership and believe that they can make a difference is really important. So that, that's now a big influence in the way I think about the role of government. So,
1: I mean, there's so much in the book that is, that, that is powerful, but I, I, I want to kind of pick on a couple of things where maybe, maybe, just maybe you and I would have a slightly different emphasis and let's explore them. So the first is that I guess for me as a leader, if someone said to me, what do you think is the most important quality that you've learned as a leader? I would say it's the ability to recognize inherent trade-offs, challenges, dilemmas, to name them, to share them, and to seek not to transcend them because they are inherent, but to kind of move the curve to the right, to move the trade-off point a bit. And I thought this kind of, because that's such an important thing for me, and I think that great leaders do own and share and name dilemmas and don't pretend that they can simply be you know abolished and notions like public value for example which you've written about I think some of their strength is that they acknowledge that there are sometimes these kinds of difficulties that I don't know let's take an example that the public might very strongly believe that more police on the beat is the most effective way to reduce crime, whereas policymakers might, makers might say, well, it probably isn't the most effective way. You've got to balance that because public services need to be legitimate. They need to be popular. They need to respond to the public, but they also need to achieve a, an outcome. Do you, think, do you think you underplayed at all the importance of dilemmas in leadership?
0: I, it's possible. I, I always... Um, I always challenge the word balance at first sight and suggest replacing it with the word combination. Can you do both? Now that, but but you're right. Of course, there are some real trade-offs where where however hard you try, you can't do both. You have to do one or the other or or, or be somewhere on the spectrum. Um, Maybe I underplayed it, but I, I do think the, I think in lots of public service debate in the media, but also lots of conversation I have, people far too rapidly get into an either or, uh, what I would call a false dichotomy. And I often say to, uh, to to people, the road tail is paved with false dichotomies. Actually, quite often you can do some combination of the two. And the public value work that I've done with the Treasury and is, that's described in the book is does talk about how you can achieve some short and medium term goals, but you can also think in stewardship terms. And this is really important going into the future with the climate change challenge, things you've been writing about yourself, Um, where we have to achieve things, but bear in mind the long-term future. And thats I think that's a growing part of leadership, and there are some genuine dilemmas. Maybe I underplayed it. I don't know. People will read the book and and let me know. The story I tell in the book that relates most closely to this is Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave, who then spent 20 or 30 years campaigning against slavery, and then after slavery is abolished, campaigning for for equity in in the United States. And his relationship with Abraham Lincoln is important to me because... He is outraged that uh, the Civil War starts and Lincoln still doesn't emancipate the slaves uh, or, or even uh, proclaim that he's going to emancipate. And in fact, he even says to the South, if we, if we can avoid war, you can keep slavery as long as you like, as long as it doesn't expand. And, and um, Douglas just can't believe that because he's a campaigner uh, with a moral cause, a powerful moral cause, and he's a very brilliant campaigner. But Lincoln is triangulating the politics. He's got to get the people of the North To join the armed forces he's got them to support get the support commission so there is a real challenge there and then he, he can't actually issue the emancipation proclamation until he's won a battle and he's shown that that's working but it didn't mean that all the way through that he didn't have a strong moral perspective it meant that he had to calculate the politics i think this is a real issue in our time for climate change protesters and campaigners Uh, who are onto something really important for the future of humanity and are frustrated by politicians, uh, in their view, not coming fast enough. But the politicians are often trying to calculate their way through the politics, even though they believe in the mission. So if you take Justin Trudeau, introduces carbon pricing and then wins the next election, but it was a tough battle in 2019. So these are are challenges. I think your point about the trade-offs and calculating them is important. And, And I think I would like to urge people to have more respect, not all the time, obviously, but more respect for politics, because politics is how we set societies up to solve these dilemmas. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, Michael, and I suspect that, I suspect that in a way,
1: you know, both of us are responding to people that we've had to kind of have conflict with, that you've had many years of dealing with people who say it's too difficult. And so talk of dilemmas and tensions makes you think, hang on, this is just somebody telling me once again, it's too difficult. Whereas I think I've, I've slightly had to deal with people over the years who've kind of wanted to say to me, it's all very simple, why don't you get on with it? And, and I've kind of reacted against that to say, well, look, you know, it isn't that simple. And, you know, I wrote in the, in the journal, RSA journal, that, you know, if I look back over my time at the RSA, which is drawing to a close, my mistakes were almost nearly all my mistakes about trying to think do things too quickly actually rather than thinking through exactly your point about create i didn 't create the conditions for change I rushed into change I believe there was a shortcut to it uh and there wasn't and i think that's an that 's an important lesson and that that point michael that you make about Well, there's two things here. The first one, just on this dilemma's point, this is one of the reasons I'm a great fan of deliberative democracy, because it seems to me that our politicians are generally speaking afraid of saying to us that things are difficult. You and I both know, Michael, if there was a policy out there that only had upsides and no downsides, then any politician would have implemented it. You know, you could forget ideology. If there's a policy that's only got good things, you're going to do it, right? Right. But politicians never say, look, I'm implementing this policy, it's designed to achieve these things. There are a couple of risks, or there may be a couple of downsides, but in the end, it's the right thing to do. And I think our representative democracy has become so brittle that it takes a remarkable leader, a kind of Jacinda Aherns of this world who can speak like that. And for me, the advantage of deliberation is it brings the public in and shares the dilemma with them and, and in that way, legitimises some of the more difficult things that our government needs to do. For example, in areas like climate change.
0: Well, Look, I, I, I'm I'm in uh, totally with you. Actually, I, I think the way that the the media world and the world of politics and I'm, here I'm not talking particularly about Britain, although it, it applies here as well. It's very very hard for politicians to act in the way that you're describing, and a few do rise. Uh, above it, but I, I, I'm, I, I think we do need to find better ways of getting to, to, to ways forward that work for, that, that will work in the context we're in. Um, so I, I think our political leaders, I think we're we're as a, as a society, again, I, I mean, the modern world, not just Britain, we're, we're very quick to condemn politicians. We fail to respect how difficult those jobs are, and we fail to acknowledge that you have to learn how to be a minister. or I mean, so every every, every other work, line of work now, we say, well, you need an induction period and there's these training programs. But, but um, ministers are meant to be, you know, plucked from wherever in politics and put in charge of something expected to be perfect from day one. So I think we, we that I would like public attitudes to politicians to change because I don't know what your experience is. I well, know some of your experience, but I found on the whole, I'm talking again around the world, the politicians I've spent time with are, overwhelmingly good people who want to make the world better in the way they believe obviously they have a particular program and you can debate the program there as in any walk of life there are a few charlatans around but i think we just need to be more thoughtful about what our politicians are trying to do and equally they need to be more open to the kind of dialogue that you're describing and i think we, we we run the risk of not just making it very hard to be a politician, but making politics not look very appealing and then making democracy not look very appealing and then suddenly you've got a kind of constitutional problem of the first order.
1: Because the public value approach that you've you've written about, and I recommend people who haven't read it to read the document you wrote for the government a few years ago about that, recognises the importance of legitimacy. And it just seems to me that our representative democratic system does not generate sufficient legitimacy for difficult choices, which is why it is we have to find ways of bringing citizens in. and it feels to me that populism is in some ways a response from politicians who've given up on the legitimacy battle. So instead, they will enter into kind of mythology and, and make the world seem very simple, a question of our tribe versus their tribe. And somehow we've got to embolden politicians to feel that they can share with us, A, that, that, things are, that change is difficult and challenging, and B, that change can never happen just through government. It requires the public themselves to be part of that, of that process of change.
0: Uh, yes, and, and uh, you know, I go back to that quote from Louisa Diogo. A few, a few, I made a few minutes ago. That you've got a government's got to find ways of unlocking the music in people, and I think that the, the, so we do. We all collectively in in in, uh, in the modern world do need to think about all those relationships between uh, people, citizens, uh, and politics and government. Absolutely, and I think the, some of these new experiments, like um, deliberative processes, are very much worth pursuing. Definitely.
1: In the book, Michael, the, 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 there's a section where you talk about competition. And and I agree with you, by the way, that, that, that competition is a kind of hardwired human instinct. And if you can use competition in the right way, it can drive innovation and change. We know that. But y- your book is very optimistic. You know, it, actually, I, when I read your book, it was the thing that inspired me to start doing every Friday cycling to the river and jumping in the water. I mean, I just thought, you know, an old bloke like you can do this stuff, so can I. So it is that kind of book, but I guess another ch- challenge to you would be: Do we also need to recognise the things that we've got wrong? And the thing—I'm sorry if this sounds like a slightly techie term for those who aren't, who don't live in public sector land—but the whole new public management experiment. You know, we had kind of 25 years of trying to kind of basically thrust commercial practices, market practices, competition, performance-related pay business ways of doing things into the public sector, and this was supposed to lead to a kind of massive gains in productivity, it, you know, it didn't really work. And and now we see even a conservative government moving away from, you know, markets in the health service towards more integrated models. What's your kind of view now, if we look back over that very deeply held assumption amongst public sector modernisers for many years that, that that that, that commercialising the public sector was the, was the key to, to improving its productivity?
0: I think, there are, well, it's a it's a really good debate, and I think the, the, there are two... I want to separate two things out conceptually, but, of course, they're related. The first is that competition, as you say, is part of um, human development uh, and progress over uh, eons. So, uh, the example, I, I use Pitt and Fox fighting out in the 1780s, 1790s, and... Uh, early part of the nineteenth century. And there's no doubt at all when you read about them that their rivalry with each other took them to new heights in in their um, for example, parliamentary speeches. I'm not sure it worked with Blair and Brown,
1: mind you, Michael, but anyway, let's let's pass over that. <laughs> We're in government
0: together, I suppose, to a leader of the opposite. Um but the but the, the there's a, a separate so, so, so that, that then leads you to think about, well, what is it about competition? And when, does it, when do you see it working? Obviously, you see, you see in sport how it drives people through competition to higher levels. But that doesn't mean that you should just apply competition uh, without thinking about it. You need to think about how you prevent the competition from getting out of hand or becoming uh, abused and total free markets like in the late 19th century in the United States uh, leads to uh, disaster. Uh, you get some very wealthy people and then you get some uh, some awful area and it took Theodore Roosevelt to sort that out in the first decade of the 20th century. So the question is to think about the relationship between competition and the overall goals. And that leads you into thinking about what a modern regulator needs to do. And, and one way to think about all of our public services uh, Or all of our services across the whole of the economy is what is the degree of regulation required? It's not zero. You know, so supermarkets there's lots of regulations about food and dates and health and and, and quality and all that. And then at the other end there's totally owned public sector uh, services, and in between there's a whole spectrum. And it's what is the combination between the public and the private perspective on those and and the quality of management. Uh, going back to some of the other things we were talking about. So I think competition, it, it, I often, I I got bored, and that's why I wrote that bit in the book, about this, oh, competition's awful and collaboration's perfect. I just find that so boring, as a, I and I don't think it's true. But the idea that you want competition and collaboration in the right places at the right times, I absolutely support. And it's getting, it's at the level of detail we need to work this through. Yeah,
1: well, I completely agree. My view, My view is that, in the end, collaboration, competition, and authority are the things that drive us. And what you need is to try to mobilize all of those drives within a system. Now that takes me to my to my next point, which is that I think one of the characteristics as we move from barber barber to post-barber barber is a, a greater willingness to talk about systems. And I think that may be because I mean there are problems with talking about systems, which is it can be an excuse again for inaction, which is, well, we can't we can't change, you know, we can't change one thing unless we change the whole system. And changing the whole system is too difficult. And also sometimes, in my view, system thinking creates a kind of – tries to create a kind of false notion of, of certainty. If As long as we can define every bit of the system, then we'll absolutely know how change is going to affect Then that's not true. That's just not how the world works. Human beings aren't like that. But nevertheless, I do sense, Michael, that you've become more – you talk more about systems in your more recent work. We have a phrase at the RSA which we use to describe change. We talk about thinking like a system – and acting like an entrepreneur. So what we mean by that is understanding that an equilibrium is a system equilibrium. And if you want it to change, you've got to reimagine the system, not just one bit of it, but you've got to reimagine how this whole system would be working. But that the way you get from here to there is to be very agile and very adaptive because the best laid plans of and men things don't work out often in the way that you think they're going to work out. You know, be, be, be absolutely frank, Michael, if you think it's, Gobbledygook. Then tell us. But do you think this notion of thinking systemically and acting in a kind of agile entrepreneurial ways is that does that reflect your own experience? I think I think that
0: yes. I mean, basically, I think that is that is right. So if you if, and and let's apply it to some of the fields other than government that that, that are in my dealt with in my book. So you take the two women, science, brilliant women scientists that, are, that are featured, um, Lucy Green and Jane Miller. They they are. At one level there, individuals, Jane Miller's absolutely determined as a biochemist to understand what she calls gene expression. Um, don't ask me for the details of the science, but it's very the far end of, uh, of, of understanding uh, DNA and all of that. And what does she? so, so she, an individual, is, is that kind of driven individual. But what does she do every day, when I said, what do you do all day? Because I'm interested in what people do all day. She said, I go into the lab every day with an open mind. And she talks with her PhD students, and they're part of a system that are doing a wider set of research. And then Oxford University's biochemistry department is part of a bigger system that is uh, the British government's uh, and a range of other agencies' investment in science for the future. I do think you have to think about those relationships absolutely like that. So she'd be an example of Lucy Green, who's a space scientist. Similarly, you're, you're doing, you're, you're, She's doing similar things, but with the very big and and distant, as opposed to the very small. Um, And I think that that is an important angle on this. And the other thing is, which comes very clearly through from those interviews with them, is they're part of another system, which is not anything to do with Britain or Oxford or, in Lucy Green's case, uh, UCL, it's to do with that field of science across the world. And if, you, if you're Lucy Green or Jane Mellow or many other scientists, and actually it applies to other academic fields, you're part of a system which is all the historians who are studying that theme around the world. And your peers are a key element of judging whether your accomplishment is serious. And most of the time that's a powerful motivator, but sometimes it's a problem because you come up with something new and the whole field says that can't be true. And then you've got to, you've got to fight uh, to, to, to sustain your point of view. So yeah, system and individual both go together absolutely.
1: So I mean, Michael, what I could, I could, I could. We could talk for all all afternoon. And and the book is, I mean, we've only scratched the surface of the book. But just kind of one last question for you, which is, I was very heartened to see that this government uh, has invited you to help them. Um, but I also thought, well, this is a big battle because my perception of this government. And we were talking earlier about the success of the vaccination programme, and maybe that will be a game changer. But my sense has been, this is a government that isn't terribly focused on delivery, uh, where there's often quite a big gap between what is asserted, the aspirations, the rhetoric, and the capacity to think through what actually would be involved in, in delivering it. Give us a bit of positivity to end with. You've gone into government with your very systematic approach you are somebody who will sit down with prime ministers or ministers if they say they're going to make an announcement we'll say to them hold on have you thought through how you're actually going to deliver this and here's what's involved you can't simply assert something you're a thing you you you've gone in you're being listened to i hope so yes um
0: look i i, I think the first thing to say about the current government in britain is They were elected in December 2019 and 2020 by any uh, account anywhere in the world actually and certainly here was one of the most challenging years to be in government in history certainly the the, the biggest crisis of our lifetimes with the pandemic and the way it unfolded Uh, and in addition obviously they they had the whole sort of Brexit saga going on alongside that. So 2020 was a let's call it a learning experience. It's a very, very demanding year to go through. Um, but if you look back through uh, some of the, uh, the Prime Minister's speeches where he talks about levelling up and uniting the country and um, uh, the, the whole green energy and the 10-point the, the plan that he announced in November or December, there's a whole agenda there that matters not just to him but to the whole country. And if this government can... Uh, as we come out of the pandemic, really get organised, to deliver on a pretty ambitious domestic policy agenda. I personally think that would be uh, great for the country. And uh, that's what I hope will happen. But we'll, in the end, uh, as always, government, it'll be judged on its record.
1: Well, you've, you know, you've, you've done this work, amazing work that you do in all sorts of environments, some of them incredibly challenging. You write, one of the bits of the book which I found most fascinating was the work that you did in Pakistan in in incredibly challenging circumstances in Lahore. So, you know, if you can make change there, then I'm sure you can make change here. I think the one thing I'd say to you, Michael, is is one of the lessons, if you remember when we worked in number 10, that we we learned, the phrase we used to use quite a lot was under-promise and over-deliver. And I can't help thinking that might be a phrase you might want to kind of pass by by our current prime minister at some point.
0: It's a phrase I... Sometimes, even then, I was never that happy with it as a way of thinking because quite often the setting of an ambitious goal publicly enables you to make progress that you wouldn't otherwise make. And so there's a whole debate in the book, as you know, about about ambitious goals. And I say take the evidence into account, of course, but in the end, it's a judgment. Um, And I think we're in in a phase where we need some pretty radical change in the way our world works and our society works and the way we think about biodiversity or climate change and all those things. So I'm actually in favour of, of not necessarily underpromising and over-delivering, because I don't think there is face with the future we've got over-delivery. I think just successfully delivering a, a future full of possibility and accomplishment to the human race and the other living beings on our planet would be a fantastic achievement. And it will take some pretty dramatic change to do that. So I'm, I'm actually in a phase of thinking some bold goals are what we need, but don't set them unless you're really serious about going to, trying to pursue them and thinking about how, which is why writing a book about accomplishment says you can set bold goals, but don't do it with your, with your eyes closed. I quote Dave Brailsford saying, if you want to sign up for the Tour de France and win it, don't just sign up for the tour, sign up for the suffering. This is, these are hard things to do. So, um, accomplishment doesn't come easy. James Dyson, who I uh, interviewed for the book, 5,127 prototypes before he put a single vacuum cleaner on the market. Five years in a shed in his back garden. Uh, this is hard work. So, um, uh, they, uh, as um, Bertolt Brecht said once, um, uh, that the future will not come after a night of sleep. We've got to make it happen.
1: Well, there we are. You summed up the the book beautifully. We've gone in in that answer from Boris Johnson to Dave Brails to to James Dyson to Bertolt Brecht. So that that gives you a sense of the range uh, of this book. I mean, as I say, Michael, I could could carry on talking to you for for ages and maybe I will carry on talking to you. But unfortunately, that's all the time we've got for this event. Um, I highly recommend everyone read Accomplishment and um, it will inspire you. As I say, it's got me cycling seven and a half miles and jumping in the freezing cold Uh, River, Um, and you'll find links to the book in the chat bar and on the RSA website. The RSA's Living Change campaign is running throughout March and April, including some very long blog posts from me, which you must please read them. Nobody is reading them. So do check our website and social media channels regularly to find out what's in store in the weeks ahead. And if you'd like to get in touch to let us know about change you've been involved in, add to the stories that Michael has shared with us and are in the book. Uh, you can tweet us using the hashtag RSAChange. So thank you again, Michael, for joining us today. And thank you all for watching. Thank you, Matthew.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.